If you have a Bible, you can open it up and turn over to Psalm 105. I have two outcomes I'd love to see this morning. Actually, I believe God really wants to see them from his word being preached this morning. And the first outcome is that you would have a clear and shareable memory of God's hand at work in the past, both the past distant, God's past history and dealing with the nation of Israel, but also in the life of our church and in your life personally. So I want you to be able to walk out of here. The way I'll know if we've achieved this outcome is if you can walk out of here and be able to share something that God has done in the past, not just an event that happened in the past, but God's hand in the past. And best case scenario, you can talk about your life and how God's hand has been at work in your life. And secondly, the second outcome that I'd love to see this morning and God would love to see, God wants to direct our memory of the past into worship. That is the point of studying history. When we go to history and we think about the past, we're not memorizing details or remembering things just so that we have lots of knowledge about the past. We understand what happened. We can impress people at a trivia night, not interested in that. It's not even fundamentally that we study history so that we don't repeat it. That's not fundamentally why we study history. The reason why we look at the past is to result in praise to look and say God's hand was at work and this is how God moved and praise belongs to God. And so that's our two outcomes for this morning. Please write those down so that you know we're aiming to not only give you a clear and shareable memory of the past, but then also respond to that past in praise. And that's not possible unless you participate because I can't do that by myself. And it's also not possible unless God's hand is in it. And so we're going to take another moment to just pray and ask that God would have his hand at work in this service right now. And so would you bow with me? Lord, we thank you for the way you have worked in the past. We know that you have worked ages ago. We know that you have worked in our lifetime. And Lord, we know with certainty that you will continue to work in the future. We're so grateful for that. We're grateful for the change in our life that has happened and we're grateful, Lord, to be able to look forward expectantly to how you are going to continue to work. We know, Lord, that the natural response to seeing your hand at work is awe. The problem often is just that we aren't looking for your hand at work. And so help us, Lord, to have spiritual eyes today to see all that you have done, to really lift back the layers and to see, wow, you were at work. You did that. And Lord, to respond in praise. We pray that this would be a glorifying service to you as it already has been, and that we would be edified. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you have ever tried to read through the entire Bible, you have probably noticed it's a very challenging undertaking. It's long, there's lots of details, and often you can get kind of lost in those details. So much so that you struggle to be able to, to in a short amount of time, say what the entire story of the Bible is about. We know, and we've found in the last few years, that people have become more and more fuzzy about the central running theme, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so Pastor Aaron just finished up a, a preaching series called to uh, getting the gospel right. We, we had, <laughs> I gotta get this right. We had another one years ago called reclaiming the gospel. And I, would think, I was pulling that one out of my, uh, my indexes. So we want to get it right. We want to get the gospel right. I can get the gospel right if the sermon title isn't. That's fine. But 
We also know that many Christians struggle to even be able to talk about biblical history. If you were to, if you were to be given the challenge in five minutes to share what is the narrative of Scripture, we might hit a few of them, but it's, it can be a challenge at times. And so this morning, Psalm 105 is helpful in that it actually helps us to hit those high-level moments in the life of the nation of Israel. It's a song of history, Psalm 105. It's very unique that way. And it shows, and it kind of zooms in on some details and says, here's how God's hand was at work. Here's how God's hand was at work. For some of you, if you're very biblically literate, a lot of the accounts from history we're going to share today, you'll know very well. And so you might be tempted to hit the snooze button and just be like, I'll tune in at the end of the sermon. But please, for you, if you know the story of Israel really well, then please look and think about application to your life today. Say, okay, that's how God was at work in the life of Israel. What is the parallel? How, is it, how has he done that and shown that in my life? For some of you, it might be new talking about the nation of Israel and all the major events. And so for you, hopefully you can just capture a vision of how God has been at work in the past. And maybe you didn't even realize how incredible that is. Psalm 105 is a very popular psalm in many ways. It was actually quoted in other sections of the Old Testament. David, King David, sang a chunk of Psalm 105 in a, in a kind of mashup song that he did in 1 Chronicles 16 when the Ark of the Covenant came back to Israel. And so he sings, it's kind of like that favorite line of your song that you just sing and all of a sudden you're inserting it into every other song. Psalm 105 is kind of like that because it's just so, so solid and so good. And so it begins with a call to worship. Just a quick overview. It begins with a call to worship to the people of God. It says, hey, you need to worship God. Call out to him, praise him, seek him. And then it's going to recount instances in the nation of Israel's history that will hopefully elicit praise. It will hopefully pour the gas on their, their flame of their passion for God so that it just ignites into a huge flame. So we're going to read through verses 1 through 6 first. And I want you to make note of the words that are commands to the audience. Okay, so usually the verbs. Pay attention. In verse 1 to 6, it says this, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. There's 11 or so commands, direct commands to the people of Israel in this psalm. And it combines around here what we use of language of the vertical and the horizontal. So there's very vertical calls. You are to call out to the Lord. You're to praise him. You're to glory in him. But then there's also a very horizontal dimension where we're called to make known the deeds of the Lord to the peoples. We're called to remember what the Lord has done. And altogether, this reminds us that God's people, God's people are called to tell the story for God's glory. We're called to recount history in such a way that God receives the glory. From the beginning of time, the very, very beginning in the garden to the great commission Jesus gave to the disciples to today, believers have been entrusted with a history of how God has worked. And we've been entrusted that 
to tell others about it. And it's not an optional thing. We've been told we need to tell this story, but we don't want to tell it in a dry, boring, and disinterested kind of your worst case history teacher kind of way. It's been said before that one of the greatest sins is to bore God's people with the Bible. That's so true. We do not want to just recite things disinterestedly. And the way that you can tell if somebody's doing that is if it's all just in the past and nothing applies to today. This is, if you want to make your retelling of God's history alive and dynamic, you just have to connect the dots to today. God worked in the nation of Israel and he's the powerful, all-seeing, all-knowing God. And God worked yesterday and he's the powerful, all-knowing, all-seeing God. And all of a sudden people are like engaged because yes, that's who God is today. It's not just something that happened way back when, it's for the history books. No, you're revealing God as the true and living God. So when a Christian can talk about the hand of God setting the Israelites free and then can talk about the hand of God setting somebody else free just last week, that's hugely powerful and people are engaged. So we don't want to bore people with God's word. We want to tell the story connecting the dots to today. So that's why you're responsible to connect the dots in your own way today. It's an immense task to tell the story of God, to tell what he has done in the world and in the work, his work. But God's word today in Psalm 105, I believe is going to give us some help to answer the question of how we actually do that. What do we focus on? There's so many things that you could zero in on. There's so many things you could talk about. How do you know what to say? And some of us aren't necessarily great storytellers to begin with. We're not great at retelling family history in an interesting way. So this is a good opportunity to exercise the muscle of retelling God's story. The first thing we're going to see in Psalm 105, and just as a note, Psalm 106, you can jot that down, is a very related psalm. It's also a psalm of history, and they kind of go in, in tandem. We don't have enough time to cover both of them, but read it at home. It's, it's, it's awesome as it recounts God's grace and his compassion and mercy in that psalm. But the first thing we're going to see in this psalm is that we want to tell the story by remembering God's promises. Okay, Remembering God promise, his promises, you can't tell the story of God, his hand at work in history, unless you understand promise. Or another word we use, covenant the covenants God has made. These are so important to God and we're gonna read them in verse seven and following. It says, he is the Lord, our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever and the word that he commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, that's his son. So he carries on the promise from one generation to the next and which he confirmed to Jacob. That's the, the grandson of Abraham as a statue to Israel, that was what Jacob got renamed as and became then the nation of Israel, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. Covenants are a big deal to God. And the reason they're a big deal to God is because they reveal his character. When God keeps covenant, when he keeps his promises, it reveals he's faithful, it reveals he's good and can be trusted and it gives all the glory to him. So likewise, when we tell people about the promises of God and the promises of God fulfilled, then God receives the glory. It looks good on him. And it is good because he always keeps his promises and his covenants. A covenant is a, a binding sacred agreement between two parties. So there's, there's God who initiates the agreement 
and then man who responds to that covenant. And God made covenants like this throughout history. One of the significant ones you may be aware of is Noah. God made a covenant with Noah, who was a righteous man. God flooded the earth. And as Noah came out of the ark, God made an agreement, a covenant with them that he would never, ever flood the earth completely again. And he gave a sign of the covenant. He gave a rainbow. And God has kept his word to this day, which if you think about it is in some ways amazing because God's covenant sign of the rainbow has been twisted since the late 70s and has been kind of thrown back in God's face being like, we're going to flaunt our sin. And God still has not, in his truth to his covenant, just wiped out the whole earth again with a flood. He could, but he's true to his covenant. He is gracious and compassionate. And he is allowing opportunity for people to repent, which is so gracious. So God is good in keeping his covenants. And he remembers them, verse 8 says, forever. He does not delete them, does not forget them, does not misplace them, does not twist them, does not try to reinterpret them like we do when we make a promise and then we go back and say, well, I, I didn't really mean that. God doesn't do that. He keeps his word true. He gave Abraham a son. That was a covenant promise God gave to Abraham. And it seemed like there was no way he could come through on that promise. Everything logically was against it. And yet he multiplied Abraham's children and his grandchildren, even though they had fertility issues. He brought Israel back to the land of Canaan a time and time again, (laughs) several times. And it just reminds us he will do what he says. His promises are true. History has proven it over and over again. So what are the promises that we hold on to? So let's connect the dots between history then and history today. I know in the life of this church, Since day one, when we were planted 21 years ago, the Great Commission has been our focus. We have been called to make disciples for God's glory. But there's a promise in the Great Commission. And the promise is that Christ will be with us always to the end of the age. He has never, never gone back on that promise. And that gives us courage. And it has given us courage from day one of this church to be able to do what he's called us to, knowing he's not abandoning us. He's not leaving us. We know promises like Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose, is true. So when early on in the church, there was all kinds of marriage issues and the small team of people in the church, it was, it was very, very fractured and, and challenging. They stuck true to God's word. They stuck to what he said and they knew all things would work together for good. We know that in the last two years, we've stuck to God's word We've seen a lot of attacks against the church. We've seen a lot of ups and downs, but we know all things work together for good. And we've seen that. We've seen God trust, or we've been able to trust his promises. At our house, uh, we have a a deck umbrella. It's one of those ones with the pedestal on the bottom, and then it swings out kind of cantilevers over. And it's notoriously bad for tipping over in the wind. I think probably most of us have these experiences with these things. They don't make them, unless you spend tons and tons of money, they don't make them with a real solid base to come with. You got to figure that out yourself and put blocks and sandbags and whatever else on it. And our umbrella continues, even when I put sandbags and blocks and concrete blocks all over it and made little wood things to hold it down, for whatever reason, a wind comes along and just twists it and, and blows it over. So I have a variety of solutions that I can work with. I can, number one, 
keep the umbrella down and it will never blow over. That would be solution number one. Solution number two is I need to figure out a better foundation for this umbrella. I need to mount it down with lag bolts into the concrete or something. And I think a lot of us, to be frank, the way we speak about God's past of the past and about God's promises is kind of like the umbrella. <laughs> We're kind of afraid to put our voice out there. We're kind of afraid to, to spread the wings and really take confidence in the promises of God. And the reason for that is it's not because the promises of God aren't secure. It's that we're not fastened to them. Okay. We need to root ourselves deeply in the word of God and the truth that it holds and believe and not doubt and question and be tossed all over the place saying things like, well, did, did God really say that? Did he really mean that? Maybe you question biblical history and you're like, okay, I don't know that there was actually a flood that was over the whole earth. Maybe it was like kind of a localized flood or maybe, maybe God didn't actually send a big fish to swallow Jonah for three days. Maybe that's just a story that was told to kind of make a point or maybe the walls of Jericho didn't literally fall when people just marched around them. You kind of see where I'm going? You, you look at the history and you maybe, if you don't take confidence that that actually happened, that God actually said that, then you won't take confidence to boldly tell the story. We need to take confidence in God's word. And let me tell you, just and reassure you right here and right now, that from cover to cover, God's word is 100% true and 100% trustworthy. And if you take time to read through it, you'll see he's kept his promise over and over and over again. If it helps, you can go to external sources and see, oh, it's verified. All these things that God says actually did happen. And we can find great evidence for that. You can use ministries like Answers in Genesis that will help to firm up your understanding of these things by showing, hey, actually, did you know a flood, a, a global flood actually is verified, is very explained in the geological record? Oh, that's, that's helpful to see. But at the end of the day, you have to step out in faith and trust God's word and just root yourself to it and make a decision. You believe what God says and you won't doubt. Satan in the garden tempted Eve with, did God really say? And that's really where it starts to undermine our ability to tell the story because we don't truly believe and hold on to God's promises. Secondly, though, we want to, when we tell the story, is look for God's protection. That's where the psalm goes next. In verse 12 to 15, it says, when they were few in number, that's the people of Israel, a little, of little account and sojourners in it, in the land, they were wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another. He, that's God, allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account saying, touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. That there is a quote reminding us of a time when Abraham foolishly gave his wife to a foreign king, Abimelech. So logically, historically, and factually, there's no reason why the nation of Israel should ever have existed. There are so many hiccups and bumps along the way where it should have ended. And this is one of those accounts not only they were challenged with basic circumstances like the fertility issues, like the fact that they didn't have any land. Abraham at one point did buy a small plot of land for a burial place for his wife, Sarah, but it wasn't exactly a defendable fortress or something like that. 
he didn't have those things, but also Abraham by his own foolish actions jeopardized the promise of God. So the king looked at his wife and was interested and Abraham had made this deal with Sarah that they would tell the king and the people that Sarah was his sister, which is sort of half true if you look into the genealogy of it. There's some truth to it. However, it was absolutely foolish and as a result, the king takes Sarah to be his own But then God, in a dream to King Abimelech, literally says, you're a dead man if you touch her, (laughs) because that's somebody else's wife. And Abimelech, who clearly fears God in this dream, hands Sarah back and says to Abraham and says, what what were you doing? And then he gives all kinds of sheep and goat and, and servants to Abraham. It's kind of like, okay, we're good. Okay, to make it clear. Well, that was God's mercy to Abraham. But can you imagine, Abraham didn't do this that we know of, but can you imagine him sitting with his kids or his grandkids later on, spinning yarns about the past and saying, well, there was this time, I played it really smart, guys. I knew if I said she's my sister, he'd take her. And that was the wise thing to do because it says submit to your authority. And he asked for her, so I said, sure. I submitted to my authority. And I I really knew it would work out in the end because I, in the end, got all kinds of servants and animals. Like it was so, I played that well. Like that would be foolish. That would be such a spin on history. And yet that's the kind of thing that we almost do ourselves. God protects us. And then we attribute it to our, oh, well, it was chance. It was skill. It was something else. And you're like, and God's just probably looking down and saying, guys, do you realize what I did for you? Amazing stuff. He protected us. And He was really, truly at work. So it's a matter of putting our spiritual glasses on. Do you see God's hand of protection? And do you attribute it to him? I know God's protected me more than once. Uh, I have two stories to share about the road, and you'll never let your kids drive with me ever again after you hear these. But they're a long time ago, okay? Long, long time ago. When I was doing my G2 road test, I grew up on a hobby farm. I grew up driving a pickup truck way before I was 16 in the field and driving all kinds of small equipment. But on my G2 road test, I was super nervous. I got in with the instructor, started driving down the road, checking blind spots, using my blinker, pulled up to an intersection, and he said, can you make a left-hand turn? I said, sure, put on the left-hand blinker, and turned, and didn't realize there was a median, and I turned into the wrong side of the median, into oncoming traffic, and wow, that could have been bad. It, it was bad for my emotional state, because I all of a sudden realized when he said, please drive back to the office, that... It was over. And so I was, but God's physical hand of protection was on me. Driving into oncoming traffic isn't exactly a recipe for success when there's a median there. Like it was just, okay, God's hand was on me. You could say it was chance. You could say whatever, coincidence, but no, God's hand was on me. A few years later, still not obviously a great driver. And believe it or not, I have no real accidents to record, but that's God's hand of mercy, totally. I was driving on on a highway uh, and it was a little bit slushy. It was late at night after a hockey game and I was driving in a little Mazda Protégé, which is a real light car. It had winter tires on it, but it wasn't uh, obviously safe to be driving the speed I was, which wasn't even the speed limit, just to be clear. But all of a sudden, the car did a 360 into oncoming traffic. And it's like, oh man, the moment I lost control, I was like, what in the world? And the car ended up doing a 360, landing in the same direction on the other side of the road on the shoulder, just as cars were going past. 
you're like, man. And I had somebody else's kid at the time in the car, and I was so like, oh. The closest thing to like peeing my pants in the, in the driver's seat <laughs> and being like, oh, that's God's hand of protection. I, I'm certain it was God's hand of protection on me. And we can look and we can zoom out and look at the life of our church and see examples where God has physically protected our church or physically protected individuals in our church. And I know of so many, so many accounts. Just last night, I was sharing stories with friends or we were going back and forth talking about vehicle accidents and like, how are we alive? How are these people alive? (laughs) Right? God's hand. He's protected us physically. Not only that, though, he's protected us spiritually time and time again. How many times have we in our flesh If we had not had the protection of God, we would have gone headlong into sin. Absolutely. And he has protected us. So think about that. It's a good question to write down. How has God protected us? And see with spiritual eyes. How has God protected us? To be diligent and reflect on those. You know, a couple years, well, this is quite a few years ago, early on in the time when I came to Harvest here, I sat down with a couple at the church and the man told me that he was scheduled to be at the World Trade Centers September 1st, or September 11th, rather, 2001. And because of some freak accident or some freak rescheduling thing, he wasn't there. And I look and I say, like, God's hand of protection. But the challenge with saying all this and being like, let's make known the deeds of God, how he protected me. The challenge that I know is in our minds is, but he didn't protect everyone. So some people have been in car accidents where they were severely injured or died. Some people were in the World Trade Centers. What, what do you make of that? Was that God's hand? We're, we're kind of shy to claim God's hand of protection because it wasn't equally applied to everyone. And it might feel like the same kind of feeling we get when you're excited about having a child, but then you're sitting next to somebody in church who's childless. Or you're excited about him healing you from cancer, but you're sitting next to a widow who lost their spouse to cancer. You get the tension, why we sometimes are not wanting to speak the story out of God's healing. And there's two things I want to just guide us to, to remember and think about as we consider this. First, God is sovereign. So God is in control of all things, and he has his purpose. We don't necessarily understand that all. He works them out for his purposes. And get this, it's an act of grace that there's any goodness or protection at all. It's not a result of your works. So the fact that I was spared in that vehicle accident was not because I was a good driver, was not because I'm a good person, was not because of any of those things. We aren't saved because we're good people. We're saved because God is good. We are not the credit for the good that happens in our life. There are times, of course, when sin is directly related, the suffering, sorry, is directly related to sin. You choose to sin, you choose to suffer, we say. But many times in life, the suffering that we encounter is not a result of our sin. This is clearly demonstrated for us in John 9, verses 2 to 3. The disciples of Jesus see a blind man, and in their mind, they only have two categories for him. Either he sinned or his parents sinned, and that's why he's blind. That's the the only way they can attribute why he's blind. But they say in verse 2 to 3, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, so he shatters their paradigm. He says, but that the work of God, the works of God might be displayed in him. 
And then Jesus goes on to heal the man. Not because he's a good person, but because God displayed his power in that. Yet we also know God did not heal the apostle Paul of his thorn in the flesh. We mentioned that last week. He allowed the thorn in the flesh to remain for Paul to continue to suffer because 2 Corinthians 12, 9, it says, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Why didn't he let the blind man continue in his weakness so that God would be glorified? We don't know. God was glorified in healing. God was glorified in the suffering. We know that God did that, not because he hated Paul and loved the blind man more, but God is sovereign in his purposes. And so we, that's one thing we got to keep in mind when we're thinking about this stuff. But then also, second, we're called to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. So it is good. It's very good to praise God for his protection and to attribute our protection to God and to praise him together. And at the same time, to weep with those who weep, but with hope weeping. We look through the eyes of faith and we can weep and praise that our faith and hope is in God and in the blessings that he promises and that ultimately we will be healed. We will be freed. We will experience the true joy. So Psalm 105 shows that example of not only God's protection, but he's going to show in a moment one of the men that God did protect. And we're going to there see that we are to remember God's presence. So verse 16 to 24, it recounts the life of another key figure in the history of the nation of Israel. So this is Joseph. So Joseph was a great grandson of Abraham. Joseph grew up in not a great situation. He had four moms, one real biological mom, three stepmoms, whole bunch of stepbrothers. It was a very messy, blended family. There was a lot of crazy family dynamics, but God chose to work through Joseph and give him a dream, a dream of the future and what God would be doing. When Joseph told his brothers about this dream, not only because they didn't like the dream, but also probably because they're stepbrothers and it's easier to not love somebody who's not a full blood brother. Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> Anyways, they decided to sell him into slavery. That's a good option when you don't like your brother. <laughs> sell him into slavery. And he ended up, Joseph ended up in Egypt. A righteous man, a moral man, ended up in Egypt in slavery. And in slavery there, he was faithful to God. God blessed him and he rose to a prominent position. It's an amazing, amazing account. Unbelievable, really, except that God's hand was on him. And the text of, Christ, of Genesis is meant to make it crystal clear when you read through it, yes, Joseph was a moral and righteous man, but like over and over again, the passage reminds you the hand of God was on him. God was with him. And that's why Joseph succeeded. Not because he was just good looking and really diligent. It was the hand of God that made him succeed. So that's what we're going to look at. 16 to 24 of Psalm 105 talks about God's hand in this man's life and in the broader life of the nation of Israel. So when God, when he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had, that's a key word, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron until what he had said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the people set him free. He made him Lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. Then Israel came to Egypt. 
Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. And the Lord, key, the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. So who was it that made them stronger than their foes? It was the Lord. Who was it that sent Joseph ahead of time, who used the evil plans of his brother selling him into slavery, but God had a sovereign purpose and sent him the Lord. God gets the credit. And it's amazing. It reminds us of the importance of God's presence and God's plans in our life. So Moses said it best. Moses being a a future descendant in the people of Israel who was called to lead them out. We'll read about him a bit more in the Psalm. But in Exodus 33, 15, this is what Moses says to God when he's leaving the land of Egypt and when they're going out. And there's this moment where there's this questioning, is God going to go with us or not? And this is what Moses says to the Lord. He said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? So the thing that sets the people apart from everyone else is the presence of God. And Moses knows that crystal clear that he's like, if you're not going to go with us, please, please do not send us out. And I like to think of this using an analogy of the comparison between flying a helicopter and flying a plane. So some of us think the presence of God is more like the, hel- the propeller on an airplane. And if the propeller goes out on the airplane, you can still coast for a while and you can probably come to a safe landing. The reality though is the presence of God in the believer's life is more like the propeller on a helicopter. The moment the propeller's gone, you sink like a rock and you are, you are toast. And if you think to yourself as a Christian, you're like, the presence of God, well, it's handy, but it's not super vital, then you are likely at this point in free fall, about to crash. Or, or the other option is that you've actually never really, quote unquote, taken off. You've never actually seen the power of God at work through you and in the ministries you're involved in. Because the presence of God is the game changer. It makes all the difference in the world. So for us, if you want to seek the presence of God, that's why the, the psalm tells us to seek the presence, you want to be surrendered to the Holy Spirit. You want to be not quenching the presence of God in you because as new covenant believers, God dwells in us. So we should be, of all people, the most distinguished and marked as holy people because of the presence of God in us. You don't want to be rebellious against God in you. You want to instead, as the the gospels say in John 15, to abide in Christ That means to remain in him. That means to think about the Lord, to be daily in the word, daily remembering that anything you do of lasting substance comes as God works through you. So write this down and think about it. How have I sought God's presence in my life, in my ministry? And how have I seen God's presence in my life and my ministry? That's a, that's a, a very difficult question. And we're again, cautious sometimes to say, was that the, was that the presence of God? We're, we're afraid to name it and to claim that this was God's presence. But I'm going to do something bold here. And I'm going to boldly say, I believe firmly that we have been blessed with God's manifest presence in this church time and time again. If you've come and you've seen on a, 
a baptism Sunday, how God is working. If you've come and you've watched people worship, it's not just some emotional experience. This is people interacting with the Lord Jesus Christ, God blessing us with his presence. And all the credit goes to him. When we see change, when we see people come to harvest and say, I, like I said years ago, I didn't know church could be like this. That's not because we're so creative and figured it out. That's because God blesses us with his presence. He makes the difference over and over again in our lives, in our church, in the people of God. So as we tell this story, we need to remember his presence. Don't take the credit for yourself. Attribute it to God's hand at your work in your life. We also want to remember, however, his power. So we've remembered his promise, his protection, his presence. You're seeing a, a pattern. There's, that's also a P word, a pattern. There's power, right? Remember his power. So Psalm 105, if we fast forward from the time of Joseph, hundreds of years later to the time when the people of Israel are now leaving Egypt, God had greatly increased their number. And now it's time. God's like, okay, now I need to take this people and bring them over to the land I promised them. And he's going to do it in a powerful way. In verse 25, it says, he turned their hearts. That's God turned the hearts of the Egyptian people to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. He sent Moses. So he sent Moses, his servant and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They performed his signs among them and miracles in the land of Ham. So a couple of quick points before we continue on. Those signs and miracles, that was in many ways the plagues that Moses and Aaron demonstrated to the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, the leader of Egypt. We call them plagues in Exodus because when you see them from the Egyptian side, they're just terror and awful. But when you see them from this side, you're saying that was a sign to the people of Israel that God is who he says he is. And it's a wonder, it's an amazing thing. So that's something there. But he starts then in verse 28, he's gonna start with darkness. Now these plagues, he doesn't list them in the same order in Genesis. And there's some reason to that, perhaps. He mentions darkness first, and darkness was the ninth plague. And it was actually the plague that for the, the, the broad people of Egypt, it was the one that tipped the scales and they were done. They're like, get out of here, Israelites. We are afraid of you. We want you gone. The ninth plague. For Pharaoh, it took the 10th plague. But for the people of Egypt, the ninth plague was the difference. It says in verse 28, he sent darkness and made the land dark. They, the people of Egypt, did not rebel against his words, against Moses' words. He turned their waters into blood and caused their fish to die. Their land swarmed with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. He spoke and there came swarms of flies and gnats throughout their country, which is worse than fish flies for sure, okay? Worse, wait, like think times a thousand fish flies everywhere. He gave them hail for rain and fiery lightning bolts throughout their land. He struck down their vines and fig trees and shattered the trees of their country. He spoke and the locusts came, young locusts without number, which devoured all the vegetation in their land and ate up the fruit of the ground, of their ground. He struck down all the firstborn in their land, the first fruits of all their strength. That is a display of God's power. In Exodus, and even in this passage, we're, we're told that Moses and Aaron performed these signs, but they're clearly attributed as his signs, God's signs, and it's, it's the Lord that is doing them. This is his power on display. 
If you read through this narrative in Exodus, you'll see the reason God did this, he makes it crystal clear again. He wanted the people to know that he was Lord. He was not content to just quickly zip in and grab his people out of Egypt and bring them to Canaan. He could have done that. Could have just blinded everybody and brought them out. He wanted to receive glory by the Egyptians, every single one of them, knowing this people, their God is the Lord, 100%. It's kind of reminiscent in a mind of one day, the scriptures say, every knee will bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's God's plan. God is very concerned that everybody acknowledge him as Lord. And he's still very concerned with that today. So when we tell of his power, as we tell the story that we've been called to make known his works, we're telling it to believers and unbelievers alike and reminding them that he is Lord. One of the challenges in ministry is that many people don't want to tell the story of God's power. So as a pastor, I know we'll call it like the dirty laundry of our church better than most. I've seen the fights, I've seen the addictions, I've seen the destruction that our sin does when it's left unchecked. However, I've also had a front row seat to see God's hand of healing and see God's deliverance of God's people. And it's awesome. Literally, if you could walk through this room and get the time to talk to each person, they were totally transparent about their story, you would be blown away, absolutely blown away with how God has worked in the people of this church. Now, some of you have been so bold as to share that. And we do a God at Work video or have opportunities to, to talk informally and share those. But many of us, we either don't tell the story because we don't really see it from a spiritual lens, or this is the big one. We don't tell the story because it reveals our shame. We don't tell the story of God's power and how he healed our, our marriage or how he healed our lives from addiction or sin or gluttony or any one of those measures because to do that acknowledges that's where we were. And it's, I just want to encourage you from a spiritual perspective, the worse you were, the more his grace and mercy shines. And so God gets praise and glory. And so why would we hide that? It doesn't make sense. It does from a worldly perspective. It does not from a spiritual perspective. So maybe this is the encouragement to you. There's something that has happened where God has displayed his power, but you're like, I I don't really want people to know that's who I was. Praise God, though, that's not who you are. It's not your identity, and it's certainly not who you are today. So let's continue to tell the story. And finally, let's remember, as we tell the story, to remember his provision. Verses 37, it talks about the provision he had for the people of Israel. It says, he brought out Israel with silver and gold, and there was none among his tribes who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed, for dread of them had fallen upon it. He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give light by night. They asked and he brought quail and gave them bread from heaven in abundance. He opened the rock and water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river for he remembered his holy promise and Abraham, his servant. So he brought out his people with joy, his chosen ones with singing, and he gave them the land of the nations. And they took possession of the fruit of the people's toil that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. And then it ends the Psalm with the call, praise the Lord. God took his people from captivity to freedom and he gave them incredible provisions along the way. And you might ask, why didn't he give the provisions earlier? Why didn't he give them the provisions in Egypt? 
And the reason, in part, was because if he had made life comfortable in Egypt, they would never have left. They would never have fulfilled his promise to go to the promised land. And so he had to allow suffering, and his suffering for them in Egypt was, in a sense, his provision for them to be able to come out. So many of you might know an eagle, when an eagle builds its nest, uses thorns in the nest, and then it layers the inside of the nest with all kinds of soft lining. So when you have a baby eaglet born, it's, it's fine, it's in a nice soft environment, but as it grows older, the mother eagle takes away the soft lining and it actually pokes and prods the little eaglet. And the point is, literally, that the eaglet will leave the nest. Some of you parents need to know this for your kids. Like, make it hard on them to leave, to leave the nest. But the pain is actually a provision. It's, it's pushing them to where they need to go. And this is how God works too. So his provisions sometimes look like plundering the Egyptians and all kinds of gold and silver and water from a rock. But his provision also looks like through pain at times. And we need to remember that because then we can see God's hand at it and give him glory. God's greatest provisions often come through pain. We can see ways in our church that God has provided, provided in beautiful and amazing ways. And I just want to share one as we conclude here. That is back in 2015, a long time, many of you might not have even been here at that time. The elders of the church brought to the church a a plan. They called it the Grow for God campaign, which was a building campaign. And back in 2015, we may have had four or 450 people coming to the church, I think at that time. I was thinking to myself, why are we going to build an 800-seat worship center? <laughs> like, I, was, I, was, we, I knew we needed to build, but I was like, 800 seats? I didn't say that out loud very much, but I was thinking it. I was thinking, why 800 seats? That's a lot. Like, that's more than, that's, we'll, we'll never fill that. Well, God in his wisdom was providing wisdom to the elders at that time. He provided finances along the way. And like, it's amazing. In the last two years, if we had not seen God's provision then, we wouldn't have been prepared for the growth that God has brought now and what he is continuing to do. And so it's just a reminder, God provides. We need to be responsible to follow his provision and to see God's hand at it. God knew 2022 back in 2015. He knew, I didn't know. And now I have much bigger eyes for what God can do, which is awesome and we can praise him for that. But just remember God's provision. This is where we'll conclude. God's people are called to tell the story for God's glory. We've looked at the past, some accounts in the life of Israel. We've seen God's, his promise, his protection, so many of the other things, his presence, his provision, his power. Draw the dots to your life. This is your homework assignment. Where has he done those in your life and how can you share them for his glory? We have a few short years here on earth Many of us will not have biographies written about us. We're not going to have more than maybe a couple of words on a tombstone that say what our life was about. And hopefully use those words really well. But let's use our words right now. Let's use our lives as a testimony to God's great hand at work in our lives and in the life of his church and in the life of his people for his glory. 